2 Kings chapter 22, verse 3 through 10 from the Living Bible. It says, in the 18th year of his reign, let's read together. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent his secretary, Shaphan, to the temple to give instruction to Hilkiah, the high priest. Collect the money given to the priest at the door of the temple when the people come to worship. Give this money to the building superintendents so that they can hire carpenters and masons to repair the temple and to buy lumber and stone. The building superintendents were not required to keep account of their expenditures, for they were honest men. One day, Hilkiah, the high priest, went to Shaphan the secretary and exclaimed, I have discovered a scroll in the temple with God's laws written on it. He gave the scroll to Shaphan to read. When Shaphan reported to the king about the progress of the repairs at the temple, he also mentioned the scroll found by Hilkiah. Then Shaphan read it to the king, and the rest is history right there. Everybody take your seats, please. Thank you, guys. Amazing. In studying the history of Israel in the Old Testament, it's an amazing study, actually. And as you study the history of Israel in the Old Testament, we learn so much. One of the things that we learn is that the number of kings who reigned over Israel and Judah, Israel at this at one point in history was divided into two, Israel and Judah. And the number of kings who reigned over those nations during the Old Testament times were 43, 43 kings, beginning with Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And right through their history from that point on, there were 43 kings. Out of that number, that number 43, only seven Seven of the 43 did what was right in the sight of God. That left 36. 36 of the 43 did not do right in the sight of God. Well, three of those 36 started out well, Solomon being one of them but turned away from God. Three of the 36 started well, but turned away from God in the latter years of their reigns. Now Josiah, whom we've just read of, Josiah was one of the seven. One of the seven who began right and he finished right. Church, it's not how well you begin, it's how well you finish. So out of 43 kings, only seven of them 
did right in the sight of God. And out of that seven, we have Josiah. In fact, Josiah tops the list as the most upstanding. And it's really incredible when you when you study his his life and the history. It's really an amazing study because if you consider that for 57 years before Josiah, before Josiah appeared on the scene, for 57 years, evil prevailed in Judah. And it's also truly astounding that Josiah, out of all 43, Josiah was the most upstanding when you consider Josiah's heritage. And man, you should take courage right here. You see, Josiah's grandfather, his name was Manasseh. And Manasseh, this is Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh was about the most wicked of them all. In fact, one chapter earlier, we read from 2 Kings 22. If you read 2 Kings chapter 21, in verse 9 of that chapter, one chapter preceding where we drew our text today, you will read that Manasseh seduced Judah. Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, verse 9 says, he seduced Judah to do greater evil than all the pagan nations, than all of them. All the Canaanitish pagan nations which God had earlier destroyed, when Manasseh came to power, he did more evil in his reign than all those pagan nations which God destroyed. And then verse 16 says, that Manasseh filled Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah at that time, filled Jerusalem from one end to the other with the blood of upright people, of upright men. This is Josiah's heritage. This is Josiah's granddad. filled Jerusalem with the blood of upright men from one end to the other. 2 Kings 21, 16. Then Josiah's father, King Ammon. King Ammon was Manasseh's son, Josiah's father. Ammon reigned for two years. Only two years. And the Bible doesn't have much to say about Ammon except that he followed the evil ways of his father, Manasseh. And then the other thing we learned about Ammon is his death. All of Ammon's officials conspired against him and killed Ammon in his own house. But Josiah, but Josiah, that's his heritage. But Josiah, zealous for the Lord's honor, and I want you to keep those, that little phrase in mind. Josiah, zealous for the Lord's honor, he made such a turnaround that spiritual revival trans- during his 31 years of rulership 
which served to bring the nation back to God. It's incredible. Having such a heritage, at eight years of age, Josiah is put in as king because the Bible says all of those, all the men of Judah went after the conspirators, those who conspired against Ammon, Josiah's father. They killed those those men, and then they brought Josiah at eight years of age, and they put him in power. And then in Chronicles, we read that Josiah, at the age of 16, began to seek the Lord his God. And then at the age of 18, he began to carry out repairs on the temple. And it was while the temple was being repaired that discovery was made of the book of the law. And Shaphan the secretary was given the book of the law by Hilkiah the priest. And Shaphan took that book and began to read it to Josiah. And the moment the king heard, reflecting back on the the, 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 his grandfather and the evil that had transpired and how his grandfather had seduced the entire nation to, to do evil. And then his own father who followed the ways of Manasseh, he suddenly realized we've, come, we've gone so far from God and he, he rent his garments, his, his kingly robes, he rent them. No other robes or garments like those in the nation. He rent them violently and cried out to God. And as a result, in his tenure, in his 31 years of rulership, Josiah served to bring the nation back to God. And I truly believe that just as it was in Josiah's day, so it is now. Our greatest need, I think it's an urgent need, church, is for revival. For revival. 2022 for us is a year of discovery, and today is part three on discovering keys to revival. Discovering keys to revival. It just so blesses me that with such a heritage, God used this man to turn an entire nation around. You know, that gives us all hope, everybody. You may not come have the pedigree. You may, you may come from a situation where there's been so much darkness in your family. So far, but here you are today. And God's ready to do something. I said God's ready to do something. What is revival? If we were to start experiencing revival What would it be like? Actually, let me rephrase that, not if. When we start experiencing revival, what will it be like? What does revival look like? Is revival just a bunch of meetings, special meetings? What are they? What's what's revival? Well, that revival meetings certainly take place, but each week we're taking time and we're looking at what is revival? And today, I want to tell you that revival is an outpouring of God's presence and it's an outpouring of God's power that moves people to respond. 
It's an outpouring of God's presence and God's power that moves people to respond. Listen, something happens when we are in the presence of God, and it is impossible to remain the same. You see, in the Bible, when God showed up, there was always a response. Whenever God showed up in the Bible, there was always a response. I just went through and started going through the Scriptures and just marking down some, and I just marked down a few responses when, when God showed up, when God came onto the scene. There was always a response, and I found a few of them. First, people broke. People broke. People who were hardened. People who were indifferent. People who were standoffish. When God came, they broke. People fell. They fell on their face. When God showed up, when the power and presence of God came, people fell on their face. People got up. People rose up. People who had been down, down they got up and started walking towards their destiny. Come on. Some people stopped. Some people stopped. And I also found that when God showed up, other people ran away. It's always a response. True signs of revival. What is revival? True signs of revival are people longing to linger in the presence of God. It's no longer just coming to church as a duty. We just go into church because it's church time. And, uh, you know, it'll be about an hour 15, an hour 20. We'll be out of there. On to lunch. I, I love lunch just like you do. But when true revival comes, we just linger. We just want more. We just can't get enough. We're not interested in, in just some little touch and just some little, hmm, God's here. Whew. We just stay in his presence and we're changed. Oh, I'm hungry. I'm hungry, not for lunch. I'm hungry for that. Hungry, longing, craving. Revival is releasing. What is revival? Releasing. Revival is releasing any unforgiveness, bitterness, or past hurts and allowing God to bring a refreshing to your soul. That's what revival is. It's releasing any unforgiveness, any bitterness that you're carrying, or past hurts that, have, that you've, you've, you've carried for so long, allowing God to bring a refreshing to your soul. How many of God's people today sit in church week after week and they're held captive to what someone said about them five years ago. How many people sit in church, sit in cell, and they're held captive to somebody telling them five years ago, 
I don't like your hair. <laughs> you know, we have to laugh to cover up our, <laughs> our guilt. <laughs> Isn't it true, guys? You know, you come to church week after week, and there's somebody across town who five years ago, they said something to you, and you're just, it's a past hurt. It's a past hurt. We don't deny it's a past hurt. But it's hindering you. It's holding you back. Revival means releasing it. The refreshing of God comes and pours over you so much. You just give it, release it, let it go, man. Let it go. They may not even be across the city. They may be across the room in your cell group. Or they may be even here today, right over there. <laughs> or right over there. Revival is releasing. It's being set free, man. Woo! We're not held captive any longer. Revival is bringing dead things back to life. That's revival. It's bringing dead things back to life. We can have dead dreams. We can have dead emotions. We can have dying passion. It's dying. We used to be so passionate. It's dying. We can't hardly find it anymore. Dead purpose. It's just dead. We used to... We used to be so driven. We had such purpose. Now we're just meandering. Revival is bringing dead things back to life. You see, God breathes life into dead things. God breathes life into dead things. This is revival. God, send it. God, send it. We desperately need it. Today, our next key to revival. Today, our next key to revival that we are going to discover is contained in verse 7 of our text. 2 Kings 22 7. Let's read it. The building superintendents were not required to keep account of their expenditures, for they were honest men. There is a huge key right there to revival that we've got to discover. And by the grace of God, we're going to discover it in the next few minutes. Let's read it again. The building superintendents, read it out loud, please. The building superintendents were not required of their expenditures for they were honest men. You know, the first thing that strikes me about this scripture from this particular version, this is the living Bible version. Your version may not have it, but in this version, the first thing that strikes me about this passage is that this passage is in parentheses. In this version, it's in parentheses. When I read that, I stopped, and I had to go back and study about parentheses. Why would such a verse be put in parentheses? And I learned what's contained in parentheses. Or I relearned, you know, it's been a while. So 
parentheses, as I begin to study, I learned that the content within parentheses is usually an afterthought. Now, it's very important, and most times it's imperative to, to the subject, to, to, to bring the subject into a greater focus or greater impact, but it usually is an afterthought. It's, 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 this struck me when I read this. It's in parentheses. It's almost like what's contained in this passage is in the mind of God, it's, it's expected. In the mind of God, it's almost like an afterthought. It's, it's like this is just, this is just the standard. This is just for my people. This is just what it should be. This is how they should live. It's no big deal. But to us, it is a huge deal, as you're going about to see. It's almost like, oh, by the way. <laughs> see, that's what parentheses. By the way, these guys didn't have to account for their expenditures because they were so honest. Just This is the Bible. This is the Word of God here. So we're reading God telling us these guys were so honest. It's kind of a side note. It's kind of just squeezed in there. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, is it packed with major insight. And it is such a huge key for revival, for that outpouring of God's presence, that outpouring of God's power for the breath of God to come into something dead. It's so key. Wow. I believe that when our lifestyle is like this, I believe that when our lifestyle is like this, like these superintendents, I believe we're going to see revival. I believe when we get to this point to this degree. When we get right here, we're going to see revival. The third key to discover for revival to come, number three, we must practice ethical behavior. We must practice ethical behavior. You know, another thing that struck me, and I want you to see this, before the book of the law was discovered, this is happening. These superintendents collecting the money are given the money that was collected from the people when they're entering the house of God to worship. The money was given to the priests. The priests gave it to the superintendents for the building and the repair of the temple. And these superintendents were so honest that no record was required They were not required to keep any records of their expenditures. And before the book of the law, this is happening before this book of the law was discovered. And this book of the law that was discovered, it served as the catalyst for revival. But before that discovery of the book of the law, Josiah made a discovery. And that discovery was he positioned, it led him to position people who were highly ethical and virtuous. 
Josiah began to discover what was necessary to position and to get everything in place for God to turn things around in his nation. There's such a desperate need in the church today for Christian ethics. There's such a desperate need in the church today for Christian ethics. What is ethic? What's ethics? Okay, let me define. This is the, this is the um, dictionary meaning of ethics. The rules of conduct based on values. Boy, right there. The rules of conduct based on values, not suggestions but on values recognized in respect to particular actions of an individual or groups or group. The rules of conduct based on values recognized, embraced in respect to particular actions of an individual or of a group. Christian ethics. That's group ethics. We're Christians. And as I began to study this, I, I came across some pretty shocking information. And I read a research that was done in the United States. This research was done by one U.S. polling group. And here's what they concluded. The research done by this U.S. polling group, now remember, the rules of conduct based on values recognized in respect to particular actions is connected with the actions of an individual or a group. Here's what this research said, and I quote, There is no significant difference in ethical behavior between church and unchurched citizens of America. Run that by me one more time. There is no significant difference in ethical behavior between church and unchurched citizens of America. You say, ah, those Americans. <laughs> hey, wait. The only reason I'm quoting this survey is because Americans love to survey. Americans survey everything. Survey, survey, survey. But the devil is the same devil all over the world. He's no respecter of culture. Sadly, when it comes to things like honesty, listen to me, church. When it comes to things like integrity, diligence, and moral uprightness, the church and the world have about the same values. If we're looking and based on statistics and based on surveys and based on all this stuff, it's amazing. Christian ethics is founded upon what the whole Bible teaches. What the whole Bible teaches us about which acts, attitudes, and personal character traits receive God's approval. That's what the Word of God does. It helps us to ground us. It's founded upon what the whole Bible teaches us about which acts, which attitudes, and personal character traits receive God's approval and which ones do not. 
receive God's approval. That's the foundation of Christian ethics right there. What the whole Bible teaches us of what God approves of the acts and the attitudes and the personal character traits upon which we receive God's approval and ones that do not. In essence, Christian ethics teaches us how to live so that each day we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God, Colossians 1.10 says. It's, a, it's rules of conduct. It's rules of conduct based on values. Godly values for us as believers. Christian values that we have to embrace. We must embrace if we're going to call ourselves Christian. If we're going to follow Christ who is our head, who is our governor, he has laid them out in his word governing our acts, our attitudes, our character traits to which we must yield, to which we must surrender so that the world can see a difference between us as believers and themselves who are in darkness. Wow. It teaches us how to live every day. Giving us rules. We don't like rules. None of us like rules. All God's children don't like rules. <laughs> yeah, that's my survey right there. <laughs> Thank you. Ethics based on the foundation of Christ. Look at me. You've got to get this. If you miss everything else, get this. Ethics based on the foundation of Christ. We're followers of Christ. We are submitted to Christ, His way or no way. Ethics based on the foundation of Christ is not concerned only with our right and wrong actions. Get it? You've got to get this. Listen, ethics based, I wish I'd have written this out. Ethics based on the foundation of Christ is not concerned only whether it's right or wrong. I want to break this down. God wants us, now look at the notes, God wants us to consider not only the action itself, but also your attitude about the action. It's not whether it's just wrong or right, it's your attitude. That's what Christian ethics addresses. The attitude of the believer, well, I'll do it. I know i got to do it. Well, you got an attitude that needs to be addressed. <laughs> Come on, we've all done that. Uh, it's like the kid whose mother kept telling him, sit down, sit down. In church, he was just all over the place, and she kept telling him, sit down, sit down. He wouldn't, so finally she just put, grabbed his shit, sit down. And he sat down and he looked at her and said, I'm sitting down on the inside, outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Boy, I see some guilty people up in here. So let's go back to this. God wants us to consider not only the action itself, but also a believer's attitude about the action followed by the believer's motives for doing the action and the results of the action. If I was testing you, 
you're an insight, I would be testing you on this next week. God wants us to consider not only the action itself, but also your attitude about the action. And then once we get that right, what about your motive? And then once we get past that, what about the results? You see, the goal of Christ-like behavior is to lead a life that glorifies God. To lead a life that glorifies God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, you must do all for the glory of God. Don't get me started on eating and drinking. Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, you must do all for the glory of God. Verse 33, that is the plan. Paul said, that is the plan I follow too. I try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what I like or what is best for me, but what is best for them so that they may be saved. Buddy, this is a man totally pure in his ethic. He's not a man pleaser. He's not trying to please man. He's trying to please God. Such a life will have a character that glorifies God, results that glorifies God, and behavior that glorifies God. Woohoo! A life that bears abundant fruit for God's kingdom. A life of obedience to God, lived in personal relationship with God. Here's another survey. Again, this survey is from the U.S. I, I would quote Kenya surveys if I could find any. I search. I start right here at home. We don't have many surveys, especially in the church. Maybe we should start a new ministry. Listen to this survey. Nearly half of all the young adult generation in the United States, nearly half of all the adult, young adult generation in the United States sees nothing wrong with, number one, calling in sick when you're not sick. Don't feel like going to work today. We're talking ethics here. We're talking rules of conduct here based on values. Are we any different from the world? Are we any different from anybody else? Nearly half of all the young adult generation in the United States, this, according to this survey, they see nothing wrong with calling in sick when you're not sick. Secondly, occasionally telling a lie to members of one's family. Thirdly, stealing from an employer under certain situations or under some circumstances. Stealing from an employer. See, nothing wrong with it. Now, compare the carelessness and the dishonesty that I've just described out of this survey. Listen to me as I finish. Compare the carelessness and the dishonesty that I have just described from this survey with the ethical behavior of many people near the turn of the 21st century. You say, wait, pastor, let's not go back to Noah's Ark. 
I'm not going back to Noah's Ark. I'm going back to your great-grandfather's time or your great-great-grandfather. I'm not going back. I'm going back about 127 years. How much has the world changed in 100 years? So compare the carelessness and the dishonesty that I have just described from this survey with the ethical behavior of many people near the 21st to turn. I'm going to go back to the year 1895. That's about 120-something years ago. Your great-grandfather or your great-great-grandfather's time. So, so we're, we're still in the, in the ball game, okay? The following letter was written to President Grover Cleveland, the 22nd President of the United States. The following letter, I found this letter, listen. It was written to the 22nd President of the United States in September 1895, and it came from a youth. And the comment was, this is one of the most quaint letters ever sent to the White House. Dear Mr. President, I am in a dreadful state of mind and I thought I would write and tell you all. About two years ago, I used two postage stamps that had been used before and I put them on letters. Perhaps I used more than two stamps, but I can only remember of doing it twice. I did not realize what I had done until lately. My mind recently has been in constant turmoil on the subject. And I think it about it day and night. Now, dear Mr. President, will you please forgive me? And I will promise you, sir, I will never do it again. Enclosed, please find the cost of three stamps and please forgive me for I was then about 13 years old. I am heartily sorry for what I have done from one of your subjects. Signed from one of your subjects. May all of us, as subjects of Jesus Christ, have the same earnest desire to be so careful in all that we do to bring Him honor. May we be zealous for the Lord's honor in everything we do to bring Him the glory. Two postage stamps which had been used before, he used again. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't deal with it. Night and day, it caused him turmoil. How far we have moved away. Mr. President, 
Will you please forgive me, sir? I promise I will never do it again. In fact, I'm so ready to get this right. I've gone over and I've included the cost of three stamps. May we have that kind of drive and desire in the things that nobody can see, in the small areas of our life perhaps, to be so zealous for the Lord's honor. Listen, when we get to that place, we can be assured that God is going to come and visit us. God is going to come and be with us. God is going to come and show Him his show us His power. When we fail, and we all do, when we fail, let's be quick to repent and come back to the foundational truths, to those rules of conduct based on the values we have embraced. Let's be very quick to come back and allow the Holy Spirit once more to guide our behavior, help us behave ourselves. Are you still interested in revival? Or is this too much? Romans chapter 10, verse 5. And I finish. Moses wrote. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Moses wrote that anyone who insists on using the law code, the Old Testament law, to live right before God soon discovers it's not so easy. Every detail of life regulated by fine print. But trusting God to shape the right living in us is a different story. It's a different story. So what exactly was Moses saying? Here it is. The word that saves, the word that saves is right here. As near as the tongue in your mouth, as close as the heart in your chest. It's the word of faith that welcomes God. Go to work in me. Go to work. Set things right. Set things right in me, God. This is the core of our preaching. And it is to be the core of our living. For this kind of living precedes a true and genuine revival. Zealous for the Lord's honor. 16-year-old Zealous for the Lord's honor. 18-year-old. Zealous for the Lord's honor. 26-year-old. Zealous for the Lord's honor. 46. 56. 76. Zealous for the Lord's honor. Give Him praise. Give Him glory. Give Him praise. Give Him praise. Hands up, everybody. Hands up, everybody. God, look up on our hearts right now.
two post-it stamps. God, bring it down. Come on, God, bring it down. Let's get real. God, get real with me. Lord, I want to get real with you. I open my heart to you right now. Oh, Father. Teach me which acts and attitudes and traits in my life are not receiving your approval. God, show me, God, by your Holy Spirit. Deal with me, God. May there be such a turnaround in my life, such a turnaround in my heart, God. Every action, every attitude, every character trait laid at your feet, Jesus, for your approval. Show me how to live so that every day I can walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing you, God. For when I do, I know that you will come to me. I know that you will come to our church. Wash me. Cleanse me. Work in me. God, I open my heart. Do that work in me deep inside. And I give you all the glory. I give you all the honor. In Jesus' name. Yes! Thank you, Father, for a great week. In Jesus' name we pray. Now let's go live it, everybody. Let's go live it. Come on, keep your heart open to the Holy Spirit this week. If the Holy Spirit wants to point out postage stamps, whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do, let Him do it in you so that you, zealous for the Lord's honor, may be blessed and visited by God. Love you. God bless you guys. Have a great week.